hymn number 113 has been announced, and we'll use that at the close of our lesson this morning. Again, to echo what Brother Roger shared earlier, we're so delighted that each has been able to come today, and we hope that the service, as we render it to God in truth and in spirit, will not only be pleasing to Him, but will be certainly encouraging and uplifting to each one of us who have set aside this time to gather on this Lord's Day morning. Certainly, as I would continue to remind you about the other things that the congregation makes possible, don't forget about our radio programs that, that are aired each, each Tuesday on WLIV AM 920 Radio from Livingston. If you have time to tune in about 10 after 10 and continuing for the next 12 to 15 minutes or so. And in addition, uh, the WHUB radio program that airs the first Sunday of each month. Again, that's 1400 a.m. out of Cookfield. Certainly tune in there, if again you can, about 10 minutes after 9 and continuing for, all oh, the next uh, 20 to 25 minutes. In addition to that, don't forget about our website that uh, Brother Adam and Brother Jonathan maintain. Certainly we're thankful to be able to afford that opportunity to individuals all around the world to pay attention to and to have access to some biblically sound resources. So if you have opportunity, you might, you might bookmark that page and you might also share it with others that, that you may come in contact with. Words from the cross. We began a series of lessons last Lord's Day morning focusing attention on some of the statements made by Jesus as He Himself was hanging on the cross. And as we began that series, we noted that if certainly the words were spoken in a fair amount of duress. Needless to say, our Savior, of course, was in the midst of being crucified, and yet it could be argued that the greatest sermon ever preached was preached in a piecemeal fashion from the lips of our Savior while He was hanging on the cross. In fact, last Lord's Day morning, as we looked at the first statement the Holy Spirit has chosen to record for us, it was that statement in Luke 23, 34, in which even though the Lord was, again, just having been nailed to the cross, He nonetheless could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as such, we devoted that lesson to a consideration of the topic of forgiveness. What was involved in the Lord's statement of it, and of course, what does God demand of each of us? Namely, that we forgive those who that trespass against ourselves. Today, we come to the second statement made by Jesus on the cross, recorded in Luke 23, verse number 43. It's the one that Brother Wendell read just a moment ago. You'll notice as we come near a consideration of that subject, we again are such that our mind is lifted to one of the highest matters of consideration. And we will do well to discuss it in the way that the Holy Spirit would have us to. It may be in light of that, I would remind you again that the circumstances in which our Savior made these statements must always be remembered because it was a condition in which He was very much not at ease. He was very much under great difficulty both in body and in mind. He was scourged. He was led to the cross. He had nails driven into His feet and hands. And all the while, He of course also found Himself in a position of being crucified. And it was perhaps in a circumstance like that one that he made those statements we're now studying. Forgive them, they know not what they do. Or the one that comes before us this morning. As we give thought to Jesus being in that circumstance, isn't it still a reminder that when you and I face problems, troubles, unfortunate circumstances in life, we must remain with enough strength and courage and fortitude to do so with faithfulness, 
Because if he could utter words like this in a condition like that, are not you and I called upon to be faithful in every regard, even to the point of death? Revelation 2.10 still says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. That topic of faithfulness then brings us to where we'll pick up our study this morning. Jesus, as we've already noted, was in that condition of being crucified as those pictures just set forth. The writer in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1, brings us to appreciate the reasoning why He was on that cross and the understanding as to what motivated its occurrence. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You'll notice... That statement alone identifies for you and me, here was one despised, here was one acquainted with grief. However, the discussion deepens as we come to verse 4 of Isaiah 53. For there we notice that namely He bore our griefs, He carried our sorrows, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him. You'll finally appreciate as you summarize some of those last thoughts, He bore my transgressions, my iniquities, and yours. In the midst of all of that, the load being carried upon His shoulders was the load that in fact cast a shadow through all eternity. The humiliation of it all, Him appreciating the pain for my sin. I ought to have been the one there, and so too should you have been. But He paid the price for all of us. The insult the uncomfort, the nature of all the humiliation that went with it. Leads me to ask you to notice again the statements he had already made. Forgive them. They know not what they do. You'll appreciate so easily with me that our Lord all throughout his preaching ministry had a remarkable discernment as it related to eternity. How often did he call individuals to understand that what was transpiring in this life paled in comparison to the enormity of what occurred in regard to eternity? What was, the, what was it the Lord said in Matthew 10, 28? Did He not on that occasion say, Fear not him which can kill the body, but hath nothing more than he can do. But I tell you, fear him that can destroy both body and soul in hell. There was a discernment, wasn't there? The Lord said, It's bad enough to be put to death, but there's something far worse and that's to leave this life unprepared to meet the greatest judge of all. Wasn't it true in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, that on that occasion Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You'll notice, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? As often as statements like that are found in the teaching of our Master, we find it embodied in yet one other way as we come to the scene of the cross. Near the bottom of that slide, you'll notice with me that we come face to face now with the fact that the Lord was not the only one crucified that day. There was He and two others. What do the sacred scriptures have to say relative to these other two? You'll notice at the bottom, it's Luke's account that specifically uses the following word descriptive of those two. Luke calls them malefactors. 
M-A-L-E-F-A-C-T-O-R-S. Two malefactors were crucified with Him. You'll notice that word malefactor as it occurs in verse 32 of Luke 23 brings us to recognize that although we have focused so much on Jesus, what about these other two? For now, each one of them in turn will take center stage for our discussion over the next few moments. In particular, you'll notice first we would do well to note something about the character of these two. What does Luke mean, what does the Holy Spirit mean when through Luke these are called malefactors? That word literally means evildoer. It has to do with one who is a criminal. It has to do with one that is a villain. You might remember that Mark and Matthew, however, exclusively refer to them as either robbers or thieves, one or the other. In fact, I would ask you to notice both in Matthew 27 and in Mark 15, those terms are used as opposed to a malefactor. What then might we say about these thieves? It would seem that our description hinges on the bottom statement. Two different Greek words are utilized in reference to these discussions. Again, malefactor versus a thief. The highlighted point is this. There are thieves who will steal from someone but do so with stealth. That is to say, they'll do so quietly. When you're not home, they'll slip in, take what they want, but they really won't try to harm you purposefully and physically. On the other hand, there are thieves that literally are plunderers. They don't care if you're there or not. They just as soon shoot you as look at you. They'll easily beat you up if that's what required. The word used in Greek here refers to that kind of thief. These two hanging on the cross literally were these villains, plunderers. Maybe not unlike those who you might remember in Luke 10, beat up a man, left him half dead, and a good Samaritan came along and tended to his needs. But remember, those thieves and robbers had left the man virtually dead. You'll notice here, these then were not the most noble of people in society that were crucified with Jesus. Plunderers, villains, criminals, thieves, if you please. In light of that, though, might we notice some of the statements that these two proceed to make. First of all, one of the thieves, and I would invite you to notice the language. Luke 23, verse 39. If thou be Christ... Save thyself and us. One of these thieves, the text says, begins to rail on Jesus. And he does so with a wording that you and I have just noted. That word rail, as you can see, it means to insult. It means to speak with a matter of vehemence against. It means to blaspheme. One of these thieves, even though he too was not in good physical condition, there was enough breath within him and enough vim, if you please, in his spirit. He proceeded to say to Christ, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. This thief, you see, had a mind for deliverance. He wanted to be freed from the pain of this moment. He wished and he in fact asserted to the Christ, If you are who you have claimed to be, save yourself and us. You notice this thief, of course, was thinking much about himself. And as so often the devil had done to the, to the master back in Matthew chapter 4, you remember on a number of occasions at the scene of his own temptation, if you be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, cast yourself off this temple, for you'll not be harmed. You'll notice 
often with Jesus, there was this question, if you are who you claim to be, well, prove it. You'll notice the Lord not once fell for the shenanigans of the devil. He didn't once fall for trying to prove what he knew he didn't need to prove. Maybe there's a subtle lesson in all of that for you and me. For the devil still uses that tactic sometimes, doesn't he? If you are a Christian, then show me something. Prove by the way you live something when often we fall prey to something and then find ourselves in a bad mistake. Jesus didn't fall for any such thing. You'll notice here, this thief had said, if you are Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one from God, save thyself and us. You'll notice the next statement, though, is not from Jesus. In verse number 40, and the next thought on our slide, the other thief begins to speak. So here was the Lord in the middle. One thief has now spoken, but now the other, upon hearing what was said, he now responds in verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Again, under a great deal of physical duress, this other thief with enough breath, upon hearing what that first thief had said, he now rebukes him. He strives to correct him while he here hangs on the cross. And of course, the other thief is as well. And he begins in verse number 40, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? What great words of rebuke. Do you not fear God? You are in fact blaspheming, railing on the very one that's his son. Do you not fear what it is that's taking place? You are about to pass from the scenes of this flesh into literal eternity. Do you not care that you're going to be condemned? Notice the next verse. He makes a statement, not only of direct description of himself. He says, We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. We are guilty of what we've been accused of. He didn't make any final plea for innocence. We are guilty of what we have been accused of. And thus we by right receive this, this sentence of crucifixion and there's nothing improper or amiss about it. A powerful adverb, isn't it? Justly. Verse number 41. But you'll notice the verse closes with him saying, This man, the one in the middle, Jesus has done nothing amiss. This thief, the one that's now the one speaking, had enough knowledge, enough appreciation, enough recognition that Christ was the one that was innocent. He was guilty of no crimes like they were. He was guilty of no infractions to the Roman authorities. He was guilty of no subjugation or lack thereof. Here was one who had done nothing amiss. Even the thief knew it. Isn't it amazing that here was again a marvelous statement by a person who recognized the gravity of the moment. Finally, in verse number 42, he now turns his attention not from a rebuke to the other thief, but to Jesus himself. And he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. You'll notice that first thief had pled for release 
I'm in pain here. If you be Christ, save yourself and us. But this thief does not in any way ask for something selfish. In the sense of immediate release from the pain, he says, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Isn't it amazing that this thief seemed to have such a different mindset, such a different appreciation, as opposed to begging Christ, get me out of this crucifixion. Remove me from the agony of this moment. All he said was, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. You'll notice that there were two immediate things that crossed the mind of this second thief. First, he knew death was soon going to be his lot. There was going to be no escape from it. And in light of that, he knew that there was to be a kingdom and the Lord was going to be the reigning matter in it. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. It may well be, and it seems like likely he did perceive of a literal physical kingdom upon earth because many of the apostles still thought that way. But he nonetheless recognized that death was soon going to be his. But please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that an amazing reflection on the part of that second thief? Amazingly, after that, now the Lord makes a comment. As Jesus has heard these two thieves speaking, now Jesus responds to that latter request of the second thief. Jesus said unto him, verse 43, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Oh, the greatness of those words. I would ask you to think at least in passing about what each one of the words mean. Verily, that means truly. This is an absolute matter. It is a fact which is going to happen. Notice also, verily I say unto thee, the Lord was the one speaking here. Today, in Greek that literally means this very day. So there is no figurative usage of that whereby he's discussing some distant point in the future. It's today, this very day, the Lord said, shalt. That is, again, the old English way of describing the verb shall. It means will. Be with me. So the very place where the Lord was on that very day is where this second thief was going to be. He goes on to say, in paradise. We now notice that the Lord has used a term, namely paradise, and in his usage of that term, what a marvelous thought now comes before us. A thought that I would ask that we begin to develop at the bottom of this slide. You and I frequently encounter or think about the usage of a word like paradise. And in fact, it seems significant to me that that's the same word that the Greek translators used as descriptive of Genesis 2 verse 8. That was the Garden of Eden a literal paradise in which Adam and Eve were blessed to dwell, a place without difficulties, problems, troubles of any sort. That was, of course, before they made the gigantic mistake of sin, wasn't it? You'll notice that this word paradise then literally can be used as referring to a Persian garden or a place respective of blessedness for the righteous dead. And so you and I notice that Jesus identified the place then where both he and that penitent thief would be that very day. This place of paradise, this place described by the Master in those words, 
brings us then to think more carefully about not only what Jesus said, but the implications for each and every one of us still today. Death, you see, a matter which even the penitent thief knew. Death was not the end, for notice he said, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. He knew that his death that day wasn't the end of him. He knew that there was an existence beyond death. And so too, isn't it true, that the Bible so frequently mentions the same. Death is but a departure, isn't it? It is just a leaving of one place and an arriving at another one. It's not the end of anything in terms of existence. James, of course, put it in words like that, didn't he, in James 2.26, when he said that even as the body without the spirit is dead, so too faith without works is dead. And wasn't it Paul who in such lovely language described death in that famous way too in Philippians 1.21, for me to depart and be with Christ is much better. And didn't he say in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7, again, using death in that same descriptive way, a departure. That departure perhaps leads us to observe that the Bible has some interesting comments informing us about this place to which Jesus, as well as that thief, went that day. Later in the sermon delivered in Acts, the second chapter, we find this statement. In verse number 30, Peter said that when Jesus died on the cross, that His Spirit was not left in Hades. Interesting, isn't it? So we learn that Jesus had earlier said to the thief, We today shall be in paradise, but Peter said that he had been in Hades. The conclusion seems evident, namely that paradise is a part of Hades. It is a location. It is a placement within it. You'll notice that that statement leads us to appreciate that Jesus called it paradise. The word paradise, as you and I know, identifies a place of comfort, a place of bliss, a place of joy, a place without torment or anguish or pain. It's a very delightful place. Perhaps a place not unlike that which we saw in Luke 16 when we remember that Lazarus upon his death found himself with eyes open in a place that was called Abraham's bosom. But it was a place of comfort, wasn't it? The notion of that comfort perhaps leads us to think more carefully about this word Hades. For if paradise is in Hades, and again that's the place Peter said the Lord's Spirit went, then we might do well to reflect upon what other things are said about that same location. The word Hades is a word that occurs some ten times in the New Testament, the original language. And you'll notice that nine of those times, unfortunately the King James translates it as hell. One time as grave. But you and I notice that Hades and hell are not the same thing. Unfortunately, though, that's the impression of the rendering in the King James translation. You'll also notice that the Old Testament uses, again, that same word in a rather frequent way. Seventy-three times. Other translations almost exclusively describe it as Sheol. The King James almost always uses it as either pit or grave. Maybe in fascination, you and I might notice this word Sheol, that word Hades, it means nothing but a place of disembodied spirits. 
a receptacle where disembodied spirits are. Well, that's what was the case with regard to the Lord, wasn't it? His body was there on the cross, but He had died. His spirit had gone to Hades. Same is true of that penitent thief. But you'll also notice that there's more in the sacred scriptures about this. We've noted then that the Lord said today to that one thief, you'll be with me in paradise. What a release from all the problems that attached to crucifixion. A release from all that pain. But as we complete that thought, we are now in position to see that this matter of Hades, there is a part in it called paradise, and oh, how sweet it must be to be there. But there's another part, too, that you and I will begin to notice. That is apparently that place where the rich man had gone. This was not a place of goodness, a place of comfort. It was a place of torment. Luke 16, 25, in fact, uses that very word in description of it. Here was again a place in Hades. It's a place where disembodied spirits are, but this one is not a place of ease, a place of comfort. It's a place of great difficulty, agony, sore regret. You'll also notice that there is a great gulf between these two. It's not possible to pass from paradise to Tartarus or the other way around. I use that word Tartarus because that's what occurs, the very word in 2 Peter 2.4. If you wish, please note with me the presentation by the inspired apostle on that occasion. Peter's he made reference to some angels who had chosen to sin against God. And truly they made a gigantic mistake. Despite the fact that they were able to witness His very presence, witness His very glory and all the marvelous wonder attached to His being, they chose to rebel. They chose to disobey. And you'll notice that Peter in marvelous magnitude says, they are bound in everlasting chains under the judgment. But where, Peter? In Tartarus. That's the Greek word that's there. Now again, the King James uses hell, but it's not the same Greek word. They are bound in a place awaiting the grand day of judgment wherein forevermore their fate shall be declared and they shall be cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone. You'll notice that this place of Tartarus on the one hand is separated by an impassable gulf from this place that is Abraham's bosom, this place of paradise. The questions that come to us as that slide closes brings us to ask a few additional ones as well. Note again the gulf that separates them and that it is not passable to cross over it, pass through it, go beneath it. It's not possible. Once you and I die and pass from the scenes of this fleshly existence, our eternal fate is sealed. Our eternal fate has been determined by what you and I have done in life. There is no changing it then. We can't claim a court of appeals and claim something different or distinct. That seals it. No wonder it's often noted how this life is a one-way thoroughfare and must we take it so very seriously. Is it not reminded of us? See that you walk circumspectly, redeeming the time because the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16. Sure enough, this life as it sets before us offers so many possibilities and potential matters, but may we choose with wisdom, knowing that we're going to have to stand before God someday. And once we pass from this life, what a terrible thing it'll be to wake up in Tartarus. 
For you'll know then, as well as I would if I'm there or if you're there, that hell is where I'm going to end up eternally. As we build upon that thought, perhaps additionally, you might appreciate the following with me. Paradise. There are many who are under the impression that paradise and heaven are the same thing. That once you die, if you've been faithful, you immediately are brought with the wings of angels into heaven. But you might note with me that that's not the teaching of this place. Notice again the Lord said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The Lord did not say heaven. He said paradise. But do we have conclusive evidence in the Word of God that that paradise was not heaven? Yes, we do. In John 20 verse 17, After the Lord was crucified, and yea, when that first day of the week arose, and you may remember that He was resurrected, Mary Magdalene carried on a conversation with Him. And as a part of that conversation, Jesus to her expressly said, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now that was again three days after He'd been crucified. Three days in which He had opportunity, of course, and direct nature of being in Hades, and yet Jesus said, I have not yet ascended to my Father. Doesn't that tell us that during that three-day interval, though He was in paradise, He was not in heaven. For heaven is where God is. Heaven is where the Father is. Didn't Jesus pray that in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Father, you see, is in heaven, but the Lord said, I haven't yet ascended there. For that three-day interval, Jesus wasn't in heaven. He was in paradise, which was in Hades, wasn't He? As you furthermore build upon that thought with me, doesn't it help us appreciate, perhaps finally, near the close of our lesson, this interesting set of conclusions? Isn't it easy to see that then in Hades, those that are in paradise are able to enjoy a tremendous degree of blessing, a tremendous degree of comfort, a tremendous degree of enjoyment. But on the same hand, those, of course, in Tartarus are enjoying a terrible degree of punishment, a terrible degree of torment, a terrible degree of disfavor. But might we say that Hades itself is not permanent? We're told that expressly in Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. On that occasion, we remember Jesus said, I have the keys of death and Hades. And He quickly made note of the time when, in fact, Hades itself will be cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone. You see, even Hades is going to be destroyed at one point. It'll be destroyed when it is empty. On that great morning of resurrection, we know that Hades is going to be emptied when the Lord Jesus Christ, through the great power of God, will resurrect one and all. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice. And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. There's coming a time when those spirits will flood out of Hades and enter into specially prepared bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 and following. And when that happens, Hades being emptied, it'll be cast into an eternal lake of fire and brimstone. Every being then will stand before God in judgment. Those who've been resurrected to life will be welcomed into heaven forevermore. Those who've been resurrected to damnation will be cast into hell 
the eternal Gehenna, never to be let out, never to be diminished in punishment, never to be altered or changed in sentence in any way. Isn't that frightful? The fright of that part of it should lead us in great bounty to desire more than anything else to live in such a way that upon death, paradise will be your lot and mine, and then ultimately heaven will be our final destination. One of those thieves had the nerve, the courage, and enough knowledge to say, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. If you die this afternoon, would paradise be where your spirit would go? If you die this afternoon, will Tartarus be the place your spirit goes? That decision is yours. It isn't left to our eldership, and it isn't left to me, and it isn't left to your parents. If you're of the age of accountability, it's left to you. You get to determine where it'll go, and don't you want to go to heaven? And therefore, if you die before the Lord comes back, paradise like the thief went to? Paradise must be an awfully sweet place. Think about the righteous dead throughout all the ages who are right there now. What a grand time it must be to hear their conversations. Don't you know that they're in a position to say, you know what, I had some bad times on the earth, but I wouldn't trade one of them because I'm here now. What about you and what about me? We've given thought this morning to this second statement made by Jesus on the cross. In conclusion to this lesson, Let's draw the conclusion and the strength of these words. We've learned that those two thieves had very different mindsets, and so too today you and I can make up our own mind. You may have heard many sermons, many lessons. You may have read the Bible many times, but the question is, have you obeyed it? Have you believed Jesus to be the Son of God? Have you repented of your sins? Have you confessed His name as the only begotten Son of God? And have you been baptized? If you have... Thanks be unto God for that decision. And may you live faithfully until death and your destination will be just like the penitent thief. If, on the other hand, you have not attended to that need, why do you delay? Why do you wait any longer? This first Sunday in November of 2013 could be the best day ever for you to become a Christian. If we could assist you in that way today, everything's prepared and ready. If you've begun that walk with the Lord but have not been faithful, come back to your first love. Come back to the one who loves you. Repent of your sins. If they've been of a public nature, let's confess them that way. And God has promised He'll forgive them. If we could be of assistance to anyone in this audience, may we never forget, Jesus said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, and may you and I strive to so live that that'll be our same destination. If we could help you toward that goal, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?